welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Don't think that I will be the one to accuse you to the Father. You have put your hope in Moses, yet he is the very one who will accuse you. Moses wrote about me, and if you had believed Moses, you would have believed me. The Gospel of John, chapter 5, verses 45 and 46, Contemporary English Version. Hello. I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. We're very glad to be with you today as we continue the series we started a few weeks ago on Anchored by Truth. We are calling this series, 10 Facts Every Christian Needs to Know. In the studio today, we have R.D. Fierro. R.D. is an author and founder of Crystal Sea Books. So far, we have covered five of the 10 facts, and we have done two other episodes to talk about what those facts mean. R.D., last time we pointed out that the reason we are doing this series is to begin to give Christians a factual understanding for being able to reject some of the false narratives that circulate widely in our culture. Before we get into our sixth fact that every Christian needs to know, why don't you remind us of how you differentiate between primary and secondary narratives? Well, first, I'd also like to welcome everybody to Anchored by Truth today. We're really grateful that you're joining us here, whether it's on the broadcast or the podcast. We genuinely appreciate you taking time out of your very busy schedules to spend some time with us thinking about the Bible and thinking about the role that the Bible plays in our individual lives. Christians are enjoined to be salt and light to their culture, but we can't do that unless we keep ourselves deeply immersed into what the Word of God has to tell us. So thank you for joining us here today. You know, as listeners are well aware, in this day and age, we are bombarded by political and cultural messages from every side. I mean, it's gotten so bad that corporations even embed these cultural dictates in the commercials that they use to sell their products. Now, most of the messages that we see, these political, commercial, cultural messages, they are what I call secondary narratives. Their message is about the environment, about family structures, marriage, politics, whatever. What most people rarely think about is that these secondary narratives are dependent on more foundational narratives. And I call those foundational narratives primary narratives. In our culture, these primary narratives include ones such as deep time. That means that the universe and earth are supposedly billions of years old. Uniformitarianism, that usually is reported to mean that the present is the key to the past. And evolution is a primary narrative in our culture. Of course, that's the hypothesis that living organisms gradually changed over hundreds of millions of years to produce all of the diversity in the biosphere that we see today. Well, the overarching result of these primary narratives, deep time, uniformitarianism, evolution, the primary result of these primary narratives is to do away with the need for God to explain the earth and the universe as we know them and as we see them. 
So another primary narrative that has taken hold of much of society is that since God is no longer necessary to explain life and the physical universe, man is free to act as he wishes. This narrative is sometimes labeled homo mensura, which means man is the measure. If God isn't around, man may organize his life and his communities in any manner that suits him or her. Correct. The problem with this whole scheme, obviously, is that just because man has invented explanations for why God isn't necessary does not mean that God went out of existence. God is still very much in existence, and much to the chagrin of modern man, God is still sovereign over the affairs of creation, nature, nations, and individuals. Truth is that which corresponds to reality, not that which corresponds to our convenience or our preferences. And the stubborn, unrelenting truth is that God has always existed, still exists, and is still in control. The only question for us is whether or not we will acknowledge His existence and His sovereignty. We want to make it clear that God exists and is sovereign regardless of whether any or all acknowledge that. Our acknowledgement of that fact is for our benefit, not God's. And that's the point of this 10 Facts Every Christian Needs to Know series. We want Christians to have a solid foundation of fact that they can use to support their faith. The facts we are presenting in this series help demonstrate that the primary narratives that are circulating in our culture are flawed, fatally flawed. So if we put our trust in them, we are building the houses of our lives on sand that is ultimately going to wash away. Even if that sand does not wash away, to our detriment in this life, it will all be gone when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Exactly. The ten facts that we are covering are going to help people begin to chip away the hold that those primary narratives have over their lives. Now, the first five facts that we've covered demonstrated that the supposed scientific support for deep time, uniformitarianism, and evolution is not nearly as strong as most people are led to believe, and not nearly as strong as is taught in most educational settings today. We'll let people revisit those episodes to see how those facts do that. But today we want to move on to our sixth fact, because we want people to understand that while our first five facts help demonstrate the need for God to explain the existence of the universe and life, these next five facts that we're going to cover will help show that the Bible contains incontrovertible evidence that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. So, what is fact number six? Fact number six is that Moses was the author of the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible, namely the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Another name that is often given to these books is the Torah. So, Torah means the same as Pentateuch, or the five books of Moses. In the Jewish tradition, those books are sometimes referred to as the written Torah. You would think that calling these books the five books of Moses would sort of settle the question of authorship. And the question of the author of the Pentateuch was essentially a non-question for over 3,000 years. But in the last couple of hundred years, liberal Bible critics have begun to hypothesize, begun to postulate that Moses was not, in fact, the author of the Pentateuch. Instead, supposedly based on linguistic analysis, 
Liberal critics have said that there were multiple authors who wrote the first five books of the Bible. Even more than that, these critics have asserted that the Pentateuch was not written during the period of the Exodus and then the subsequent 40 years in the wilderness. Instead, the critics date the production of the books, the first five books of the Bible, between about 900 B.C. or so to around 500 B.C. or so. The traditional dating for the Pentateuch is that they were written either in the 15th century B.C. or at least in the 13th century B.C. The variance in dates depends on whether the scholar supports either the late date or the early date for the time of the Israelites' departure from Egypt that is described in the book of Exodus. Probably the most widely accepted date is the early date, which would place the departure of the Hebrews around 1445 or 46 B.C. So, the assertion that the books of the Pentateuch were written between 900 B.C. to 500 B.C. places it in a difference of several centuries. That's not a negligible difference. So, if the liberal critics do not believe that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, who do they believe wrote them? Well, the most common hypothesis is the so-called J-E-D-P hypothesis. Now, I'm an old army guy, so in old army lingo, that's Juliet, Echo, Delta, and Papa. J-E-D-P hypothesis. It's called that because this hypothesis says that there were at least four different documents, all of which were combined to create the Pentateuch. Now, the J document, the Juliet document, that was supposedly used as part of the Pentateuch was created by a writer who preferred the use of the term Jehovah as the name or title for God. Jehovah, of course, is the Greek version of the Hebrew term Yahweh, which most people know means I am. This name was made famous in Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush, when God declared that his name was I am who I am. In Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, we have this exchange, quote, Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you will say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Unquote. Right. And so this hypothesis says that the J document writer, like the name Jehovah for God, but the E, the Echo document writer, used the name Elohim for God. Now the Eloist author or authors supposedly lived around 700 to 750 BC and they lived in the northern kingdom of Israel. This would have been after the kingdom of Israel, which had been unified under David and Solomon, had been divided under Solomon's son. The northern kingdom was called Israel and the southern kingdom was called Judah. And the D, the delta of the J-E-D-P, stands for Deuteronomy because it is supposed that this document writer or writers wrote most of the book of Deuteronomy. And it's also usually assumed that this was the book that was referred to in 2 Kings 22.8 and the document that was found in the temple in Jerusalem around 621 B.C. Now the P, the Papa document, refers to one or more priests who supposedly lived during the period of the Babylonian exile or immediately after the Babylonian exile. And it is supposed that these priests wanted to sort of compile a pious fiction of one form or another in order to encourage the people. 
who obviously would have been very discouraged when they were either in exile in Babylon instead of in their homeland in Palestine, or still recovering from the exile even after they returned back to their homeland after the Persians conquered the Babylonians. Yes. Or they were writing a book because they wanted to compose a sort of holiness code for the exiles or the returnees from exile. And so what they did was they compiled a final set of books from some existing earlier documents, and they wanted to strengthen the authority of those books, so they imprinted them, in effect, with the authorship of the most famous Jewish leader ever, and that was Moses. The problem, of course, is that if this hypothesis is true, it immediately discredits a number of other scriptural passages that refer to Moses as the author of the Pentateuch. These are references to Moses as the author in the books of Joshua, First and Second Kings, Ezra, Nehemiah, David, Daniel, and Malachi in the Old Testament. And there are more references to Moses as being the author of the Pentateuch in the New Testament, such as our opening scripture from the Gospel of John. Right. And of all of these scriptural references to Moses as being the one who received the law from God and transmitted it to the Israelites, the reference from John chapter 4, verses 45 and 46, is certainly the most troubling of these references. Because if Moses didn't actually receive the law, well, that would mean that Jesus made an error. Jesus is speaking in John chapter 4, verses 45 and 46. And in those verses, Jesus unequivocally states, quote, that Moses wrote about me, end quote. When he said this, many commentators believe Jesus was referring to passages such as Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. But Jesus was also likely referring to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, where Moses wrote, quote, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him, unquote. Right. If Moses did not write the books of Genesis through Deuteronomy, then Jesus was mistaken, because Moses had not, in fact, written about him. Well, that's not just a problem. It's catastrophic for our salvation. In order for Jesus to be our Savior, Jesus must be both fully human and fully divine, and a fully divine being cannot sin or make mistakes, and that even goes for errors that pertain to historical fact. So if Jesus was mistaken and Moses did not write the Pentateuch, it threatens the whole basis of Christianity. Well, I guess that tells us what's at stake with fact number six, that Moses wrote the Pentateuch. So, what evidence is there that Moses did write the first five books of the Bible? Well, we don't nearly have the time today to get into all the lines of evidence, but there are several of them. Let's start with this. The JEDP hypothesis and others like it all depend on some form of linguistic analysis to declare that the Pentateuch was not the work of a single author. The fundamental claim is that the use of multiple names for God indicates that the books must not have come from one writer. But, and this is a big but, but while linguistic analysis is the basis for the JEDP hypothesis, linguistic analysis also destroys the hypothesis. How so? Well, supposedly under this hypothesis, the JEDP documents were being produced somewhere between the 9th and 6th centuries B.C., 
Well, during that time period, other books of the Bible were also being written. And so we know from certain from those other books that were written during that same time period that the most popular name that was being used during that time period for God was a different term from Jehovah or Elohim. It was the term Jehovah Sabaoth. Now, the English translation of this term is the title Lord of Hosts, and the term hosts essentially means armies. According to Dr. Jonathan Sarfati's commentary on the first 11 chapters of Genesis, entitled The Genesis Account, the term the Lord of Hosts occurs about 67 times in Isaiah, late 8th century BC, 83 times in Jeremiah, turn of the 7th and 6th centuries BC, 13 times in two chapters of Haggai, late 6th century BC, and 51 times in Zechariah, turn of the 6th and 5th century. That is, this title for God was used the whole time the documentarians claim the Pentateuch was written. But this title is not in the Pentateuch at all. Most strange for redactors. Right. So, supposedly, linguistic analysis tells us that there was not a single author of the first five books of the Bible, but linguistic analysis also tells us that during the very time period in which the Pentateuch was supposedly being created, the priest doing the fabrication never once used the title for God that was most commonly employed over a period of two or three hundred years. Said slightly differently, the principal reasons the critics used to criticize Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch actually demonstrates that the Pentateuch was created long before the period during which they want to ascribe its creation. That seems like a relevant point. Are there any other reasons for believing that Moses was the author of the Pentateuch? Plenty, actually. But here's one that's fairly easy to understand. It's pretty obvious from reading the books of Genesis through Deuteronomy that whoever wrote them was very familiar with the land of Egypt, but only had very limited familiarity with the land of Palestine. Now, Dr. Gleason Archer, in his Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties, provides some observations about this. The climate and the weather that is cited in the book of Exodus, again, second book of the Bible, as illustrated in the crop sequence in Exodus chapter 9, verses 31 and 32, that crop sequence is typically Egyptian, not Palestinian. And the trees and the animals referred to in Exodus through Deuteronomy, they are all indigenous to either Egypt or the Sinai Peninsula, but they are not indigenous or common in Palestine. This is relevant because according to the books themselves, they were written during this period in which they were leaving captivity in Egypt and heading for the land that had been promised to Abraham, Palestine. The book of Genesis covers the period from creation until the Israelites left Palestine to settle in Egypt because of a severe famine. While in Egypt, the nation grew from just about 80 people to a nation of close to 2 million. The book of Exodus, of course, describes Moses confronting Pharaoh and the initial period after the Hebrews left Egypt. For the next 40 years, they wandered in or around the Sinai Peninsula. So, for instance, Dr. Archer notes that the acacia tree, which figures prominently in the construction and furnishing of the tabernacle described in Exodus, is found widely in Egypt and the Sinai, but is only found in Palestine in the region around the Dead Sea. He also notes that the hides that were used to furnish the outer covering of the tabernacle came from an animal called a dugong. The dugong is a form of marine mammal that is similar to a manatee. It is found in the seas adjacent to Egypt and the Sinai, but is unknown in Palestine. 
and the lists of clean and unclean animals that are contained in Leviticus chapter 11 and then repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 14 include a number of animals that are peculiar to the Sinai, but they are simply not found in Palestine. Now, it's hard to imagine how a group of priests who had either been living in Palestine or in the territory around Babylon, Babylon is far to the east of Palestine, it's hard to understand how that group of priests who had been living in lands far removed from the Egypt and Sinai for hundreds of years would ever have concocted such a list. Now, even if the priests had somehow familiarized themselves with a group of animals who lived in the Sinai in Egypt, well, the people that they were writing to, the people whom the priests wanted to influence, the people the priests want to encourage, they would have had no way to relate to those lists of animals because they certainly didn't know the habitats of those animals. Again, bear in mind that the supposed date that the documents that formed the basis for the Pentateuch were written hundreds of years after the book of Exodus was created. Dr. Archer also notes that all of the geographic references in the first five books show someone who is very familiar with Egypt but not familiar at all with Palestine. In Genesis chapter 13, verse 10, when the author is trying to describe what the vegetation is like in the Jordan River Valley, he compares it to the well-known region in the eastern part of the Nile River Delta. This reference would have made no sense to a group that lived in Palestine or Babylon, but made perfect sense for a people who at that time had lived in Egypt for a hundred years. Remember that after Jacob went with his family down to Egypt, they stayed there for over 400 years. By that time, the descendants would have forgotten all about what Palestine was like, but would have been very familiar with the Egyptian geography. And another thing that makes perfect sense for the traditional view that Moses wrote Genesis through Deuteronomy during the period that immediately followed the Egyptian captivity is the emphasis in those books that is placed on the tabernacle. The tabernacle was essentially a large tent, but it was built according to very exacting specifications. The specifications were very exact about the size, the materials, the structure, the organization, and the furnishings. Well, it is absolutely unheard of, it's extraordinary, to focus on essentially what's just an elaborate tent. There are no other examples in ancient literature of so much attention being paid to a mobile worship center. I mean, there is so much detail provided that even the weight of the base sockets that held up the pillars is specified. If the JEDP hypothesis were true, the readers of the assembled documents would have been living in a time well after the construction of Solomon's Temple in Jerusalem. Solomon's Temple was magnificent in every way. Even if the final documents were put together drawing or after the Babylonian captivity, all the Jews still remembered or knew of the glory of Solomon's Temple. Solomon's Temple lasted for hundreds of years in Jerusalem before it was destroyed by the Babylonians. Solomon's temple in Jerusalem had been the center of Jewish life for hundreds of years by the time the purported documents were written. It's hard to see why any group of writers would have thought that elaborately describing a tent that had no relevance to their readers would have inspired them or induced them to more holy living. But the descriptions of the portable tabernacle would have made perfect sense to a group of desert wanderers who would see that tabernacle as the center of their lives and worship for the next several decades. So again, the view that was accepted in the church for 3,000 years 
that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible during the 40-year period while the Hebrews were wandering in the desert makes perfect sense as to the reason that so much attention was paid to the tabernacle. But it makes no sense at all in the JEDP hypothesis. And we should make one final point for today. At one time, it was thought that the one reason Moses couldn't have written the Pentateuch was that the 19th century scholars were dubious that writing was being widely used at the end of the Exodus in the 1400s BC. But today we know that writing was commonplace in Palestine at that time, don't we? Yes. There have been numerous discoveries of clay tablets which show that even the common people in and around the Sinai were literate people. They could read and write. There was a group of tablets discovered in Sarabit el Qasim, in the region where the Egyptians operated some turquoise mines, and these tablets were discovered that dated from the second millennium BC. Well, these tablets contain records of mining quotas and some religious declarations. But the significant thing about these clay tablets is that the writing was in an irregular style, and that's quite different from the style of writing that would have been done by a professional scribe. So, as Dr. Archer says, and I'm quoting now, Already, back in the 17th or 18th centuries B.C., even the lowest social strata of Canaanite population, slave miners who labored under Egyptian foremen, were well able to read and write. Close quote. Well, if slave miners could read and write, Moses, who had been educated in Pharaoh's household, certainly would have been capable of preparing the books that are attributed to him. When it comes down to it, the reason the critics resist Moses' authorship of the first five books of the Bible is because those books contain prophecies which we now know have been fulfilled. Fulfilled prophecy is strong evidence that those five books, as well as the rest of the Bible, were inspired by a supernatural God. Critics try to late-date books until after prophecies were fulfilled in the hopes that doing so makes it seem like the writer was writing history disguised as prophecy. Moses, among other things, prophesied that if the Hebrews didn't remain faithful to their God, they would wind up going into captivity. That happened when the Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC, and the Babylonians destroyed Judah in the early 6th century BC. And the point of this series, this 10 Facts Every Christian Needs to Know series, and today's discussion is to help Christians guard themselves against these narratives that circulate so widely today. One of those narratives is that the Bible cannot be trusted. So to push that narrative, the critic must cast doubt on the reliability and authenticity of Scripture. Well, the bad news for the critics is that the Bible can withstand those attacks provided Christians arm themselves with relevant facts and knowledge. Moses wrote the Pentateuch, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses uttered prophecies that would only be fulfilled a thousand years later and some prophecies that would only be fulfilled 500 years after that. Only an almighty, omniscient God could have enabled Moses to do that, and when he enabled Moses to utter prophecies that were 1,500 years in the future to their fulfillment, he gave powerful evidence that those first five books of the Bible were only the beginning of a long line of inspired revelation. When we start taking a hard look at the available evidence, our brains confirm what our hearts already know. There is no coherent explanation for the universe, the Bible, and the events of world history that doesn't include God. This sounds like a great time to go to the Lord in prayer. 
Today, let's listen to a prayer that God would intervene to stop one of the most pernicious evils that has ever existed in the world, human trafficking. Sadly, this evil is not confined to faraway places, but even occurs where we least hope in our own community. Prayer for Combating Human Trafficking Great Father of wonders and miracles, we glorify your holy name, for you are sovereign. We know that even though you are high and lifted up, that you remember the afflictions of your people. You have a heart of compassion for all your children, especially those who are suffering. You have said in your word that the fervent, effective prayers of a righteous person will bring great benefits. Trusting your word, we pray that you would bring an end to human trafficking in our community, state, nation, and world. Lord, we pray you would grant great wisdom and understanding to the organizations that are combating this vile practice. We pray you would superintend the help they provide to victims. We pray that you would unite your people into a body united to be fierce warriors for those who have been enslaved and cannot defend themselves. We ask that you would give us wisdom and courage to inspire us to know how we can help. We give you all the glory for all that you do. In Christ's holy and precious name, we pray and give thanks. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where... We're not perfect, but our boss is.